0: Let's open our Bibles once again to the little letter of Jude right before the book of Revelation, and I want to read to you verses five through seven. Jude writes, now, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He's kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Tonight, as we continue our study of Jude, we have come to one of the most sobering passages of the entire letter. It's a very brief letter, but not only is it one of the most sobering passages of Jude, it's also one of the most sobering passages of Scripture. Because in the verses that I just read to you, Jude gives three examples of God's judgment upon those who in the past rebelled Against him. These are all apostates. In verse 5, he speaks of God's judgment upon the Israelites in the wilderness who wandered for nearly 40 years because of their unbelief. They were apostate, and God punished them by death. They eventually died in the desert. In verse 6, Jude speaks of divine judgment of eternal bonds. For fallen angels, demons who revolted against God in following Lucifer, who was also Satan. And in verse seven, Jude speaks of God's judgment upon the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as the surrounding cities, it wasn't just Those two cities, but the surrounding cities because of their rebellion in committing unnatural sexual sins. Now, why does Jude mention these three examples of divine punishment? Because as you will recall, in verse four, he said that certain people, certain persons have crept in unnoticed, crept into the church unnoticed, who were long before marked out for this condemnation. That's what verse four says. Says, meaning that although some apostates have crept into the church or perhaps several churches, no one should be surprised or alarmed by their presence. Why? Because Jude tells us long ago, meaning during Old Testament times, God wrote in his word about ungodly men like these coming in the midst of his people, and he spoke about their condemnation. In other words, the Old Testament Scriptures speak about apostates infiltrating the community of believers. And one of the things that the Scriptures say about them is that these individuals will be condemned and judged by God. So, having stated that there is coming a day in the future when these ungodly men who have brought great harm to the people of God and have attacked the truth in Jude's day, he says, understand they will be divinely judged at some point. And and Jude now reassures and gives assurance to his readers about this coming judgment by reaching back into the days of the Old Testament, into Old Testament history, and mentioning three particular, specific Groups of apostates that have already been judged. And the three examples of apostates that he writes about, as we said, are the rebellious Israelites who wandered in the wilderness, the fallen angels who joined Satan in his rebellion against God, and the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah who practiced sexual perversion. Now, each of these three groups was apostate. Why? Because, as you'll recall, an apostate is someone who who knows the truth of God, is familiar with the truth of God, yet willfully chooses to reject the truth of God. Sometimes they profess to believe for a little while and then they say, no, we don't believe. But other times they just are those who are familiar with the truth. They don't profess to believe the truth. They just reject it. And. Each of these groups that Jude mentions were just like that, and they were eventually judged by God. And as you will recall, that is, as I said, the definition of an apostate. They are not ordinary unbelievers. They are those who know the truth of God, deliberately turn away from the truth of God, and often have an agenda to turn others from the truth of God. And so the point of these verses is to establish the certainty of future judgment concerning apostates. But the question is, why does Jude need to do this? Why is he saying this? What purpose would it serve his readers or us in knowing about God judging apostates? Well, it accomplishes, I think, two things primarily. Number one, just knowing that God will not let apostates get away with their wickedness ought to encourage every true Christian. We've been called to contend for the faith. That's our calling amongst other responsibilities that we have in the New Testament. But we have been called to contend for the faith. But sometimes in the midst of these battles, we can easily get discouraged because it seems like nobody's really listening to us. Apostates continue to mock the truth of God. And they are often smug in their unbelief. And frankly, they can be at times intellectually intimidating. But by Jude reminding us about God judging them, He really emboldens us. He emboldens us to stand fast for the truth because in spite of the arrogance and smugness of apostates now, He reminds us and strengthens us to know that God will not allow the wickedness of apostates to continue forever. He will certainly bring judgment upon those who mock the truth in these days even as He has judged those who have mocked the truth in the past. So I think that's one purpose for writing about these apostates and their judgment. Secondly, I think Jude may also have written about the judgment of past apostates as a sobering warning to those in the church who might be inclined to listen to these false teachers. They profess to believe in Jesus, but they may not really know the Lord. And they are drawn to these false teachers. And I take it that Jude is reminding them to consider the end of an apostate before you follow them. So I think it's a warning to the church as well. Now, Jude begins verse 5 by mentioning that he knows his readers are familiar with these Old Testament historical judgments. Notice the beginning of verse 5 says, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all. In other words, though you already know this, I want to remind you about this. Now, as I've mentioned in, in previous studies, Jude's readers... His original readers were probably Jewish Christians. And the reason we say that is because Jude doesn't go into detail about these Old Testament incidents, which would indicate that they were familiar with these incidents. Jude mentions a lot of, he goes back to the Old Testament, a lot of references and doesn't really explain them. Now, if they were Gentile Christians, you'd have to explain this. But these Jewish believers raised with an understanding of the Old Testament scriptures would be very familiar with these incidents of rebellion and judgment. So he just mentions them. He assumes that they know about these things. And that's why Jude, as I said, doesn't go into detail in explaining anything about these stories. He just reminds them so that they can reflect upon these incidents and apply them to their present situation. What he wants them to reflect upon, and this is the message that we're going to look at tonight, the past judgments of three groups of apostates. So let's begin. The first judgment of apostates that Jude mentions is the judgment of the Israelites in the wilderness. He continues in verse five by saying that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. This is a reference to the time of the Passover when God delivered the entire Jewish nation from being enslaved to the Egyptians. This is what most of the book of Exodus is taken up with. In fact, that's why the book of Exodus is called Exodus, because it is about the Exodus or the leaving of the children of of Israel from bondage to the Egyptians. Now, most of us are very familiar with the story. We know that the Lord delivered Israel by inflicting a number of supernatural plagues and judgments upon the Egyptians. And finally, after the last judgment, which was the death of all the firstborn in each Egyptian household. Remember, the Jewish people put blood on the doorposts and God said, when I, when I see that, I will pass over your sins. But the Egyptians did not do that. And so with the death of the firstborn in each Egyptian household... Pharaoh finally relented and said, get out of my land, get out of my land. That's what Moses had said to him, let my people go. And now Pharaoh said, you can go. However, although all the Israelites were physically delivered from Egypt by God's mighty hands and his gracious hand, something was very wrong with their spiritual hearts. There was a heart of unbelief. Almost as soon as they were out of Egypt, they began the nation began to grumble and complain against Moses and his brother Aaron. First, they complained about their lack of food and their hunger. Let's, let's go back to Exodus chapter 16 and see this. Just a few places so you can have it sort of register in your mind. This is just about as soon as they are out of Egypt. You recall that God parted. The Red Sea and the Israelites crossed on dry land. But then when the Egyptians tried to cross the sea, came back and they all drowned. So there was miracles. There was God's mighty hand. And so here's what happened. Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. The whole congregation noticed this, not just some. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness The sons of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. No sooner were they out of Egypt and God's done all of these miracles for them and they start complaining, we don't have enough food. Then they started complaining about their lack of water. Chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. And by the way, God's answer to their grumbling about food was manna that was miraculously delivered to them. Exodus 17, starting at verse 1. Then notice all the congregation, not just a small group, but all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people and the implication is all the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So they complained. They complained about food, they complained about water, and by the way, God once again miraculously brought forth water out of a rock, gush forth water. Then, after that, when Moses was told by God to go up on Mount Sinai where he was to receive the Ten Commandments, what were the people doing? And they turned to idolatry, led by Aaron. And so the early history of the chosen nation was one of of just sinful, constant grumblings. Why? Because they did not believe God's word. That was their sin. That's what Jude says. That's what the Hebrews says, by the way. He had promised, the Lord had promised to bring them to a land, he said, flowing with milk and honey. He had promised that he would settle them in the land, that they would possess this land. They could drive out the people who lived there. And all he wanted out of them was their trust and obedience. But they refused to trust him, even though... He had performed all these powerful miracles on their behalf, as I said, parting the Red Sea, drowning Pharaoh and his army in the waters, giving them manna to eat every day, bringing forth water from a rock, on and on it goes. And their continual and hardened hearts of unbelief finally came to a head when they stubbornly refused to believe that God would defeat the Canaanites who had occupied and who were occupying the promised land. Look at Numbers, just two books over. Numbers 14. Now remember, God said, I'm giving you this land. God promised Abraham the land and his descendants, and now they are delivered from bondage in Egypt. Go, the land is yours. Possess it. Moses had sent some spies into the land to check out the land. And remember what all the spies but Caleb and Joshua said. All the spies said, we're like grasshoppers compared to these people. We're small. They're giants. We'll never defeat them. And so we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 14. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people Wept that night all the sons of Israel grumbled notice once again, they're complaining and grumbling against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation said to them would that we had died in the land of Egypt Boy, they say that a lot, don't they? Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. I mean, folks, this is just wickedness. It's unbelief. At every step of the the way, God met them miraculously. And now they're complaining again. We didn't have food. He provided food. We didn't have water. He provided water. Now, We can't defeat them. Let's go back to Egypt. Let's get a new leader for us. It would have been better to just die in the wilderness than be be tortured and killed in the land of Canaan. And in response, God finally had it, and he punished the people. Chapter 14, starting at verse 26. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you will not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, And Joshua, your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. What he's saying is everybody 20 and older will die. That generation will die out. And all those who are under 20, your children who you were afraid would be slaughtered in the land of Canaan, they'll possess it. But you will wander in this wilderness until you die out. So they were condemned. They were condemned. And they did wander in the wilderness for about 40 years until that generation of unbelieving, of adults, unbelieving Israelites, all perished. Now, this is the divine judgment that that Jude is referring to. And why was this so relevant for his readers? Because the sin of these Israelites was their hardened unbelief. They rejected the leadership of Moses and Aaron, and they were hardened in their unbelief, and that was precisely the sin of the apostates of Jude's day, what they were guilty of. These men who had come into the church knew the truth. They even professed, To believe the truth. How do we know that? Because verse 4 says that they turned the grace of God into a license for sin. So they were familiar with the grace of God in Christ. They were professing believers even as these Israelites professed to believe the truth. But they did not. Even as the apostates in Jude's day did not. They had abandoned the truth of the gospel in Jude's day because their hearts were guilty of unbelief. This is precisely, folks, why the writer to the Hebrews talks about what he talks about concerning that generation of Jewish people who died in the wilderness. Unbelief. Look at Hebrews chapter 3. This is the same thing. And the writer to the Hebrews, knowing that his readers were very familiar with this, plays upon this as he warns them throughout this book about He says says in Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 7, "...therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked Me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness." where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest, meaning the rest in the promised land. Take care, brethren, the writer says. This is his application and it's valid for us as well. That there not be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Now, he's not talking about those who who know Christ and then you can lose your salvation. He's talking about those who are familiar with the truths, these Jewish people, that Jesus is the Messiah. They have a familiarity, but they've never made a commitment to him. He says, beware, lest your heart be like that, that you fall away from the living God, you who know the truth, but continue to harden your heart. He says in verse 13, but encourage one another... Day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't hang around the truth without committing yourself to the truth, or you will harden your heart. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. A true believer continues in the faith, is what he's saying. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me for who provoked him when they had heard. Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses and with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see. That they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Then he goes to chapter four and he says, therefore, let us fear while the promise remains of entering his rest. Now he's talking about the rest of salvation. Any one of you may seem to have come short of it, for indeed we have had good news preached to us, that's the gospel, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. He said, don't be like those Israelites, they were apostate, they heard the truth, but they did not unite the truth with faith. So. I say to you, make sure you're a genuine believer. Make sure you're not simply familiar with the gospel, but that you really have a genuine commitment to Jesus Christ. So the first judgment of a group of apostates that Jude tells the church about is the Israelites in the wilderness. They were in the sin of unbelief. But there's a second group of apostates that Jude talks about. And the second judgment of apostates that he mentions is the fallen Angels, Verse six, he writes in angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now Jude mentions the rebellion of a group of angels, those mighty created creatures who once served God But decided to join Lucifer in rebelling against the Lord, which Jude refers to in their rebellion as abandoning their proper abode, meaning they did not keep their positions of authority, but they fell. That's why we call them fallen angels or demons. And now because of their rebellion... They are experiencing, Jude tells us, divine judgment by being kept, he says, in eternal bonds under darkness, waiting for the final sentencing of God's judgment. Now, I want you to know that there are many Bible teachers, Bible teachers I deeply respect, who believe that what Jude is referring to is a time in history when angels had sexual relations with women. And they would point us to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 4, claiming that this is the background, this is what Jude is referring to. So let's turn there, Genesis chapter 6. If you want more on this, we have tapes and CDs when we covered this as a church several years ago. Genesis chapter 6, starting at verse 1. This is about just before the time of the flood. Now it came about... When men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now keep your place, if you will, in Genesis. And so those who embrace this view, as I said, very, very wonderful, many wonderful Bible teachers, they would point us to Genesis chapter 6, claiming that what we have here, That the sons of God, they would say, they interpret as fallen angels who took on the form of human bodies, males, and had sexual relations with females and produced a race of violent giants. That's the thought here, not just giants, but violent giants on the earth called the Nephilim. And as a result of this wickedness, as we read on Read on in Genesis. God sent the flood in the days of Noah to wipe out everyone. Now, this is a very popular view among, as I said, many respected evangelical Bible teachers. But personally, I I think it's wrong. I I don't agree with this. And I think there are some serious interpretive flaws and issues to deal with. So let me tell you some of my problems with this view, and then I'll tell you what I think Jude is talking about. First of all, there is no evidence in Scripture that angels have the capacity to have sex and produce children. There is no evidence unless this is the only passage, and I think that's pretty flimsy to base it on this. They are spirit beings. They are not flesh and blood. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 30, that angels don't marry or have sexual relations. He said that's the way we're going to be when we are in heaven. And he used the angels as an example. Now, it's true that we, that we read in the Bible that at times angels took on the appearance of humans. But these are only appearances. Unlike Jesus, who was a real man Through the Incarnation, angels are not real people. They may have looked like real people, but they aren't real men. They are not real men with the capacity to have sexual relations with females. So I think that's one reason that this interpretation is on very shaky ground. Second, when we look at why God destroyed... The earth with the flood, the Bible specifically states in Genesis that it was because of the sin of humans, not angels. Never says angels. It says humans. In fact, look back at Genesis chapter six, verse three. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. Not demons, not angels, but man because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. We read in verses 5 and 6. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness, notice this, of man was great on the earth. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made, not angels, but man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. God's sorrow was over creating man who had been become so wicked, not angels. So there is no evidence, no indication that this, that the flood had anything to do with demons. God poured the flood out on the earth because of man. My third problem with this view of angels having relations with women is that this so called race of giants, violent giants, the Nephilim, existed after the flood. Look at Genesis 6.4 again. Genesis 6.4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. These are the violent giants that that those who hold to this view say this is these were the children of demons and humans, which is is odd that you would have half demon, half human. That sounds more like Greek mythology to me than the Bible. But they say that that the Nephilim then were the product of this, and that's why the flood came to wipe this race out. But notice, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, yes, and also afterward. Afterward what? After the flood. Now, think with me for a moment. If the purpose of the flood was to wipe out this race of violent demon humans then why are they still on the earth after the flood? If the fallen angels theory is right, then there must have been a second invasion of these demons upon women after the flood, if you have the Nephilim later on. And scripture says nothing about that. In fact, nobody says anything about that. I think the very best explanation of Genesis chapter 6, and I think this is what Genesis is referring to, I think the best explanation of the sons of God and the daughters of men and the most natural way to understand Genesis is that the sons of God are those in the godly line of Seth. That's Adam and Eve's son. And the daughters of men are the ungodly line of Cain's descendants. And these two groups began to mingle. It would be like believers marrying unbelievers. And the lines were crossed and the result was widespread godlessness on the earth to the point that there was only Noah and his family of all the people on the earth who were believers. And that's why God wiped out the earth. With a flood. Now, I take it. And by the way, let me just say this, that that when Moses wrote Genesis, Moses lived about 1500 B.C. Jude is written probably uh, about. uh 70 AD, there, thereabouts, maybe before, maybe, maybe after. When Moses wrote Genesis, if, if people didn't have Jude, Bible teachers didn't have Jude, I don't think anybody would look at Genesis chapter 6 and conclude about demons, unless they had Jude, which they think verifies that. So for 1500 years plus, people believed and looked upon this and said, you know, the most natural reading of this the sons of of Seth, the children of Seth, the children of Cain. There's just nothing in the context to indicate anything other than that, and yet that's what's held to because they say Jude verifies this. Now, let's think about what Jude is is talking about. If we go back to Jude, I take it that Jude, verse 6, is simply telling us that God has judged those angels who joined Lucifer in his original Rebellion against God this would go back to Isaiah 14 verses 12 through 15 When lucifer said I will be like the most high Lucifer was not content to be an exalted angel. He wanted to be like God and God said you have fallen you have fallen You're through His pride was lifted up against the Lord in rebellion to God's authority. And Revelation twelve verse four seems to indicate that one third of all the angels followed the devil. You can look that up on your own. But Revelation twelve four seems to indicate that one third of all the myriads and myriads of angels followed Lucifer and they are now known as fallen angels. Or, as I said, demons. And Jude's point is that God now holds these apostate angels in judgment, which Jude describes, if you look at verse 6, as kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, what does Jude mean by this? Well, he really doesn't give us any explanation beyond these words, which reveal... These words reveal that these angels who once resided in heavenly places now are confined to darkness. Prisoners in chains awaiting the final sentencing of their eternal punishment from God. Now, those who support the belief that these are the demons who had relations with women would say that these are the demons confined because Scripture does say that that Satan and fallen angels, other fallen angels, roam the earth. Satan walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. So they would say, yes, this validates our point because not all angels roam the earth. There are some who who are confined. And and that's that's a very good point. I don't have a great answer to that, except that Jude doesn't give us a whole lot of detail. So it would seem to me, and I don't know why, that that... Certain angels are confined to these chains and others are not. But just because I don't have an answer doesn't mean there isn't an answer. I think the weight of evidence is on what I told you tonight. But um, we know that during the earthly ministry of Jesus, we, we know that there were demons who pleaded with him not to send them to this pit of darkness. So there are some who are at the pit of darkness and others who are not. Why? I don't really know. Now, regardless of how you interpret the the act of rebellion on the part of the angels, whether you take the demon uh, and women relations theory or you take this other that I'm I'm pointing out to you, understand this. Don't miss Jude's main point. Don't miss his his message. And his message is this, not only is he recalling a historical event in which God punished these apostate angels for their rebellion, but he's also letting believers know that God will punish those apostates in their midst who are just like these fallen angels. That's the point. How are they just like these fallen angels? You'll see as we get more into our study of Jude. But they were arrogant, selfish, these apostates in Jude's day. And apostates are always like this. Arrogant, selfish, knowing the truth but rejecting it, lifted up with pride and an air of self-importance. Let those who act like this in the church beware of God's coming judgment. He punished the angels and he will punish them even if today's apostates think that they can get away with their rebellion. That's the primary message that Jude is saying. You can't get away with it. God punished even these exalted creatures known as angels. So don't think that he won't punish apostates of all ages. So Judas mentioned two times in history when God specifically punished some apostates, the Israelites in the wilderness because of their unbelief, the fallen angels because of their pride. And now he mentions a third group of apostates that God judged, the people of Sodom In Gomorrah, verse seven, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Jude turns to a very, I find very interesting example of Old Testament apostates who were punished. He tells us about the men of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. As well, he he adds, the cities, some other cities around them, who were punished by God because of their gross immorality of their homosexual behavior. Now, what makes Sodom and Gomorrah such an interesting example of apostasy for Jude to use is that by definition, apostates are those who have had some exposure to the truth of God and reject it. So how did the pagan citizens, they were not Jewish, how did these pagan citizens of these ancient cities know the truth of God? We understand about the Israelites. We understand about the demons. But how did these people of Sodom and Gomorrah know? Well, I want I want to quote from a book written by John MacArthur, actually many years ago, a little book on Jude. I think it's called uh, Beware of the Pretenders, in which John says this. The destruction of these cities probably occurred about 450 years after the flood when at least one of Noah's sons, Shem, would have been still living. He goes back to Genesis 11, verses 10 and 11 to verify that. Since this was about 100 years after Noah's death, Genesis 9:28, people would have known about his years of preaching God's truth. Remember, Peter says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So I think it's it's obvious that there would have they would have had some exposure to the truth from Shem as well as from Noah, but I also think that Romans chapter one tells us that they knew the truth. If you look at Romans chapter one, the Apostle Paul tells us about the ancient world That knew the truth but suppressed the truth. He says in chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, he says in the ancient world, and I I think he's talking about this, this era of Sodom and Gomorrah. In the ancient world, he said there are people who know the truth and yet they suppress it. So suppress it means to hold it down, to not embrace it. He goes on to say, he explains about them. How did they know the truth? He says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. The thought is around them, meaning creation, nature, general revelation. For God made it evident to them. He explains, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood, though they have been uh, having been understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse The people in the ancient world, true, they didn't know the gospel, but they had plenty of revelation about God's power, he says, his divine nature, some of his invisible attributes. They they knew enough, they were given enough light about God to embrace the truth. But what did they do? Verse 21. For even though they knew God, meaning they knew about God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was darkened. When they should have been theologians, they became philosophers. They rejected the truth. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Man became very religious in worshiping creatures rather than God. Why? Because he rejected the truth. When, when God gave the light, a man turned off the light and rejected it. God turned it even darker and let them move into darkness. That's why there are so many religions in the world. It's not because man is seeking the truth. It's because he's turned away from the truth. Therefore, verse 24 says, God gave them over, notice this, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And he explains further in verse 26, and I think this is precisely what we have in Sodom and Gomorrah. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. It means women Having relations with women. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Then look at verse 32. Which sums it all up. He said, and although they know the ordinance of God, meaning folks, they know the truth. They know this is wrong. They know what they've done is wrong. That those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. What Paul is saying is that these folks knew the truth and they rejected the truth. And I think that's exactly what Jude is saying. And that's why the men of Sodom and Gomorrah were apostates. They had an understanding of the truth and they rejected it. So the citizens of of these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, were legitimate apostates. They were familiar with the revelation of God, and they rejected it. And the most glaring evidence of their rejection was that of sexual perversion. Now, they were guilty of a lot of things, but this is the most glaring thing that they were guilty of. And Genesis 19, you don't need to turn there, but Genesis 19 reveals that when two angels came and stayed at Lot's home in Sodom, The men of Sodom and Gomorrah thinking that these angels were men. Why? Because they were in the appearance of men. They weren't real men. They looked like men. Thinking that these angels were men wanted desperately to have sexual relations with them. And these men, listen, these men of Sodom and Gomorrah were so lustful in their immorality that even when the angels struck them with blindness, they didn't give up. Genesis 19.11 says that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. This is not the doorway to get out. This was the doorway of Lot's home to get in. Blindness didn't even deter them. Now, in all fairness, I want to say there are some Bible teachers who say that Sodom and Gomorrah's sin of sexual immorality proves that the fallen angels had sexual relations with women in the days of flood. They go back to this. And their reasoning is that when Jude says in verse seven, notice that. They, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, the they, they say, that he's referring to are the fallen angels and the strange flesh that they went after are the daughters of men. So they say, well, it's very similar. Jude is just comparing the angels and their sexual immorality to the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels went after strange flesh, that is human, humans, And it would be strange flesh for the men to go after other men. But I don't think that's what Jude is doing. I don't think he's tying the homosexual behavior of the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah with the fallen angels. Let me give you another translation of this verse in Jude by Lenski, a leading Lutheran scholar. I think you'll see what Jude is teaching. Here's how Lenski... This renowned Lutheran scholar translates this. He says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities near them, in similar manner to these, these meaning the angels and the destroyed Israelites, because they committed exceeding fornication and went after other flesh, lie before us as an indication of eternal fire in undergoing justice. Now, based on this translation, Jude then is saying that the similarity between the Israelites, the fallen angels, and the, and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah isn't their particular sin. It isn't that their sin was similar, but rather the fact that all three of them received the punishment of eternal fire. That is eternal damnation. In other words, God has dealt in the past with apostates by eternal punishment, and he will deal with the present apostates by condemning them to hell as well, it is interesting to note from the scriptures that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, remember by fire and brimstone, which is a picture of eternal fire, is mentioned 23 times in the Bible. 23 times in the Bible, their destruction is talked By the way, the destruction was so devastating. That no one knows for sure where those cities even existed. They probably were by the Dead Sea. And if you've ever been to Israel and you've been down by the Dead Sea, it's wilderness. It's just wilderness. That's where the, the best archaeologists in Israel believe that Sodom and Gomorrah existed. There is no, no evidence when you go there that they ever existed. But they did. Twenty-three times in the Bible... Their destruction is mentioned. Why? Because God has set them forth and as an example, a strong, powerful example of how he deals with apostates judgment. Now the Lord wants all of us to understand that he doesn't take apostasy lightly. If there's anything we get from Jude, we ought to get that message. Apostates are always judged. They may think that they're getting away with things. They may be popular today. Some of them may be very wealthy from books that they sell. And speaking engagements. But that time is coming to an end. What God has done in the past. He will do in the future. So what does that tell us about false teachers. Who are apostates. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be intimidated by them. They're wrong. And they will suffer eternal consequences. For their rebellion. They're not just off a little bit. Their hearts are hardened. Hearts are in unbelief. Pride. They reject the truth. But each of us needs to make sure that we are genuine Christians and not those who have simply become familiar with the truths of the gospel. But we've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ. Do you realize that it is even more dangerous now to be an apostate now today than during Old Testament times? And let me show you this Hebrews chapter 10. Just stick with me for a few more moments. Hebrews chapter 10. Starting at verse 26, our writer is telling us that it is more dangerous to be an apostate now because of the truth of the gospel than it was even in Old Testament times because of the powerful message of the gospel. Notice he says in verse 26, For if we go on sinning, and he means by this rejecting the truth, willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, If we go on sinning, if we just reject it after receiving this knowledge, he says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment. There is only one sacrifice, and that's Christ. If you reject that, there's no more. But a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Reject the law of Moses, you were a Jew back then, you would have no mercy. You would die. How much severe punishment, he says, do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? said, if you think it was rough to reject the law of Moses... What do you think of rejecting the Son of God? Much more severe punishment. Verse 30, For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. And then he concludes, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So if you have never committed your life to Christ, then make sure you do so today. Before it's too late. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray. Lord, this is indeed a sobering passage of Scripture. And I thank you that it's so sobering. I pray that you'll use your word tonight to, first of all, encourage those of us who are doing just what Jude tells us to do, contending for the faith. And sometimes, Lord, we speak to those who have rejected the truth. They know the truth. They try to intimidate believers and mock the truth. I, and they scoff at it. I pray you'll encourage us that there is a day coming that you will, in righteous judgment, deal with apostates. May we be encouraged by that. But I also pray that we'll be warned that each of us will make sure that we really know you, that there is a commitment to the person of Christ and that we have not just been become familiar with the truth about him, but we really know him. I pray that you will help us, Lord, not to get lost in the details of what we've covered tonight, but to make sure that we don't miss the main point, that apostates will be judged. You're faithful to keep your word. We thank you for that. We trust you, Lord. We pray you'll take your word and just use it in our lives for your glory, your honor, and to the praise of Jesus Christ. I pray for those who, Lord, may be wavering, May they come to genuine faith in salvation and salvation in the Lord Jesus, and it's in His name we pray. Amen.